We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. All right. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm Brandon Pollan, and today I am only joined by F. Scott Field from the co-host, as Stephanie's a little bit busy today with work and just being a boss, so it's just going to be us two on today. And today, we have the pleasure of welcoming a very prominent figure in the movement industry, and with that, we have Dr. Brent Brookbush. Now, as the, C- as the founder and CEO of the Brookbush Institute of Human Movement Science in New York City, which aims to optimize the delivery of movement science education by really integrating technology, student-centered learning, and evidence-based practical education. And, you know, Brett, first and foremost, thank you for your service and thank you for your time with coming on a talk with us this afternoon. And, you know, do you think you could give our listeners kind of some background into who you are, how you got to where you are now, and kind of what you're up to now? Yeah, um... Yeah, no, thank you guys for having me on. Of course, it's it's always great to uh, to to be on stuff like this, and you guys helping me get the word out. Like I, I of course appreciate the chance to uh, talk about this stuff. Obviously, it's something I'm very passionate about. Um, as far as my background, man, I I started as a personal trainer. I have kind of a weird entry into that industry because I started as a jazz trombone player. I uh, came out to New York on a full tuition ride to play jazz trombone. Thought that that was going to be my life, and and I tore a muscle in my lip. Uh, that kind of ended my career. At the time, I was personal training, so I just kind of let that take over. Um, once I started personal training, I eventually ended up seeing some teaching done that kind of inspired me to think, well, well, maybe I could, I could do that, right? And I think there was part of me that really latched onto being back on stage and maybe being back into performance a little bit. You know, so maybe that kind of helped fill the gap that I had lost by not being able to be a jazz trombone player anymore. Um, and then that kind of drove the rest of my career to where I'm at now. That was almost 15 years ago I started teaching. So I started off teaching for New York sports clubs and Washington sports clubs, Town Sports International, which is one of the largest uh, health club chains in, in the East Coast, right? So I started training their trainers and then I went to Equinox, was training their trainers. And then I started my own company. And the idea behind my own company was really the germ idea for what became the Brookbush Institute, which is there's a lot of smart people out there. Uh, There's a lot of good information out there, but I didn't really think it was being taught particularly well. And, you know, that kind of comes down to the fact that nobody was really looking into education science itself and how to develop a lesson plan and how to optimally communicate um, things like scaffolding and andragogical precepts and student-centered learning, which of course you had mentioned earlier. So I kind of started this consulting company trying to wrap my head around that. 
I got picked up by the National Academy of Sports Medicine, which you guys probably know is the largest certifying body for personal trainers. I was faculty for them for seven years. Um, I actually just resigned recently because of how busy things have gotten at the Institute. And uh, now it's, you know, the last three years has just gotten really excited. You know, three years ago, we, we decided to gate our content which we had been doing a lot of social media advertising for our workshops, but we decided to gate this content and really try to turn the website into something more. And it's been this really exciting transformation to use all of this educational technology that's out there to really not only optimize the delivery of education, but now I really get to play a role in optimizing access as well. Because obviously with, with the education technology online, you're unlimited. You know, like I can now put video, illustrations, text, pop-up glossary, uh, tests, multiple choice tests that are pre-approved all on an app that you can use through your mobile device. Like that's just insane to me. Like I, I love it. I think it's really cool. So it's been good. Like the whole thing's good. I love human movement. I love education. And now that the technology piece has just made it, made it really intense. No, I love that. And I think that's a very, very powerful point. I think that's really important to really recognize that blending technology and really integrating that into the best way can really help with education. And, you know, and, you know, Brett, Brent, with, with all the movement brands and PT, personal training, ATCs and other realms that exist too, you know, it seems like you guys have kind of a little bit of a purple cow scenario here, which um, if any of our listeners haven't read the book by Seth Godin, please look into it as it's a really good book. But, you know, with that being said, what are you doing at your company that is unique that others don't do in order to really stand out and kind of separate yourself from the masses that you haven't already mentioned? Great question. So I think there's actually several things that we do that we're kind of, I hope, spearheading. Um, and we can get really, really technical with evidence-based I do think we're one of the few companies who have taken the evidence-based movement by the horns and really decided that we're not just going to back stuff up with research, but we're going to do comprehensive research reviews for everything we write using every piece of research, right? Which is why if you look through some of our stuff, you know, some of our bibliographies are massive, but we kind of take a big data approach to that, uh, which is to say that we think that the answer is not in even like the levels of evidence thing is such a flawed tool. Um, and I could get into that in a, in a whole different conversation, but we think that the most accurate information, the most accurate protocols are really going to come from trying to see the trends in all of the data from all of the research on a particular topic. So you have that. And then you have the scenario, which you kind of hinted at, which is we're integrationists. You know, we'll use any, that, and that, that, that has two sides to it. Number one, we'll use anything that works. You know, we're not modality specific. I think the whole modality specific certification is the wrong direction. Um, no one modality is optimal practice. Uh, but we're also integrations in the sense that we're huge fans of the human movement professional. And I don't really care whether you're a chiropractor, ATC, physical therapist, massage therapist, personal trainer. I don't care. Um, I want you to have all the tools that you can use within the scope of your profession to help the people that are under your care. And I think this infighting between scopes is, or infighting between professions rather, is garbage. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of resources. And, uh, you know, I think we could all learn a lot from each other. I would love to see sometime in the future, and I know we're talking like three or four decades in the future at this point, but, you know, it'd be great to see chiropractors, ATCs, physical therapists, maybe acupuncturists all actually be the same profession in one sort of evidence-based um, manual movement 
degree, if that makes sense. Like you'd be like a doctor of, of movement therapies or something. Um, you know, and then I could get into the technology side. Of course, we spend a ton of our resources just, just making the technology piece as flow through as possible. You know, we, we take inspiration from everywhere from Apple to some of the newest apps that are out there to some of the best in, in education technology, you know, with, you know, everybody from like the Khan Academy to even some of the universities who are doing their online programming. Yeah, I love that um, technology aspect of things. I really think that's a direction that the whole field of, of health, wellness, fitness is all heading nowadays. Um, but with Brooke Bush's Institute's offering of numerous articles, videos, classes, and live events, how does your program work? And what's the progression if, say, I'm a new member who joined and I'm looking to become a better clinician? Uh, great question. So, again, we're, we're integrationists. <laughs> so, and here's what I mean by that. We're we're going to put all of that back in your hands. Our goal is to eventually have all of our content uh, formatted in a way that optimizes the delivery of education. As I kind of mentioned before, we're all about it. We want it to be enjoyable. We look at things from the point of retention, comprehension, application, and enjoyment, not just that we got some crazy complicated information out there. We're not trying to dictate to people. I think once we get all of our, all of our content approved for continuing ed, I think that changes the game a lot. So now you can take whatever you want and know that you're getting credit for it. We then took a huge step last year and created a certification, but we decided we were going to turn the certification industry upside down by going, well, let's get rid of all of the stupid uh, hoops that people have to jump through to gain a certification. So we're no longer going to have one large exam at the end, which we personally believe just promotes a cram and forget model. We're going to allow professionals to choose which courses they feel have the largest impact on their current job situation. So of all of our courses, which we have 75 online courses now and two live workshops, we'll have more than 100 by the end of the year online courses and we'll have three live workshops. You can choose whichever of those courses you want to add up to 80 credit hours worth of continuing ed. And we're going to give you credit for each one to four hour course as you go and make that available to you either on your PC or your mobile device so that we hope we can make education really convenient for people to the point that like if one of you guys had a cancellation today, you'd go, yeah, man, I was looking at that uh, gluteus medius activation course Brooke Bush Institute put up. It looked interesting. I'm going to go knock that out right now. And boom, you just got more information for yourself that you enjoy. You did it on your phone, which you enjoyed. You got one more credit hour of CEC, which is pre-approved. And you just put one more credit towards your human movement specialist certification. And by the way, this is all included under the same $19.99 a month membership fee. No additional cost. So you're not penalized from an expense standpoint because you want to learn. Wow. No, I really also to kind of just add to that, I really like that how they're not through a certain set of classes you have to take, like they can choose which one they want. Like to me, that would just scream like adherence is really, it would probably, I would assume be very high because people can choose, you know, based on what they feel is relevant to their practice, what they self-reflect and see what they need to improve on. So it really, it's really much better than kind of, I can definitely see that as a big, big benefit to perhaps more of a standardized approach with that one where being rigorous and everyone has to go through that same thing where 
people come from different backgrounds and may not need more in this region. They actually may need more in a different content area. So I, I really do like that avenue of it for sure. And I think there are some really good, important, valid things that we can take from that. And, you know, and Brett, and you talked about this kind of earlier with kind of the integration with different things. And how does your company educate clinicians about the different contributions to pain and limitations other than simply just movement? Well, we haven't really gotten into the pain science aspect of things. And, you know, that's something we hope to take on later. And, and don't get me wrong, I do love all of that information. And, you know, I was reading Butler and mostly stuff before the pain science movement even became a, a monster wave through the physical therapy industry like it is now. Um, but I think the pain science end of things right now has a big problem, which is practical application. Um, and I think everybody knows that right now, right? Um, and as a practical education company, it's really hard for me to integrate that right now because the, you know, it might be really nice to talk to somebody about how all of the various background information in somebody's life may contribute to your outcomes. But the truth of the matter is, is I can't tell you any one thing that's going to help you. So eventually it'll become part of our, I think, subjective examination and maybe some sort of patient education portal or module, right, for our courses. But we just haven't had the, the, the bandwidth to take that on at this moment, right? Because we're, we're really concerned at the moment with our, our exercises and, and manual therapy techniques that we feel are very practical, very hands-on, very much something that people can take to the clinic on Monday morning and, and get something accomplished with. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head there with that pain science stuff. Even uh, Lorimer Mosley and David Butler admitted that it wasn't very practical with how to apply this pain science stuff, which is why they came out with uh, Explain Pain Supercharged, the second book in that, that uh, NOI group. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it, it makes sense to, to put the information out there on, on, you know, all this great research and education that's there. But if you can't apply it, you can't transfer the knowledge we're missing a huge opportunity there, you know, for sure. So I think you hit that. Yeah. And we'll get there, man. I don't want anybody to think that we're anti-pain science. We're not. We just, you know, like I said, I, I, I'm really a nuts and bolts practical type right. of guy. Practicality, sure. You know? And I think it would just be hard. Like what, you know, you guys, probably, if you've seen my courses, you know, there's videos at the end of every course on practical techniques, you know, like, so think about it from my side as a, as an, a practical education business owner. Like, so I write a, an article on pain science. What videos am I going to put at the end that you're going to take back to the clinic on Monday? You know, it's, it's tough. Yeah, and I think I, as an know. educational doctorate, I, I appreciate that. You know, I'm, I'm working on my dissertation now, and I think the knowledge transfer uh, and, and how to make it practical is really the, the biggest next step that we need to take in, in the world of physical therapy, for sure. As an education doctorate, I think one thing that could be done, although I, I, I know where you're at, you're going to really appreciate that. I think a lot of what comes in with the pain science stuff is how we communicate with clients, right? Because I definitely use all of that pain science language, right? Like I definitely have toned down how I explain stuff to people and how in depth I go. And I try to take more of a, you know, tell them what they need to know, not stuff that's just going to uh, catastrophize the problem further, you know? And I think all of that's really important. But then again, going back to the education piece, how would you write that into a really succinct lesson? I, I need some more practice, I think, teaching it before I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to wrap my head around what a lesson plan would look like for that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Brent, what changes is the Institute looking to make in order to improve educational content and delivery to their members? So we use andragogical precepts, if you're familiar with Malcolm Knowles. 
Uh, we are very big on, you know, adults don't want to be dictated to. They want to have a role in the direction of their education. Uh, we're real big on associative learning. So if you get into my site, you'll notice that there's all these hyperlinks in everything we do. There's like a pop-up glossary, right, in, in every course that we have. And the reason that stuff is there is not just because it's cool technology, but it's, it's the idea that you're reading a piece and maybe in this piece I mentioned that the gluteus maximus may have some role to play in stabilizing L4, L5 through the thoracolumbar fascia. And you're like, what the frick is this Brookbush guy talking about? And sure enough, you can go and click on the link, gluteus maximus, because it's hyperlinked. You can go over to the gluteus maximus article, and there you go. You have the information on origins and insertions of the gluteus maximus and a couple research studies that break down how the thoracolumbar fascia may actually allow the gluteus maximus to put some tension into all the way up to L4, L5 and stabilize those joints as well. You know, and then from there, you're going, well, man, I need to know more about the thoracolumbar fascia. And sure enough, we've, we've linked that to three studies by Vleeming. You know, we do these little research reviews. So hopefully we're helping uh, clinicians translate research. Like we, we look at ourselves as kind of translators in that situation where these research reviews are trying to write uh, a research review in a way that a clinician would write, want to read it because we know that research studies are kind of written for other researchers. But anyway, you can take that, you can go in and read three studies by Vleeming and you know, all of a sudden you started with gluteus maximus activation, but now you've also picked up more on gluteus maximus uh, anatomy. You've picked up more on the thoracolumbar fascia, and you just read yourself through three research studies. And, you know, you didn't hate the process because it was all self-directed, and you got to kind of do what you want to do. You know, it's going back to kind of everything we've talked about so far in this discussion, like just putting it all back in your hands. So, so you don't have that feeling you got when you were in school of being forced. Nobody wants to be forced to learn. That sucks. No, absolutely. And I think you brought up a lot of good points there, Brett. And, you know, something that I'm always curious about, you know, as we kind of, as you kind of mentioned with kind of going more of the research and getting more of that research that's being able, that's more geared towards clinicians. Um, so in your opinion, I realize this, I realize this next lit question is probably could potentially be a long one, but you know, what are some of the top quality research studies that show that, you know, quality of movement patterns over the course of the long term and kind of how they relate to future occurrences of musculoskeletal pain and disability? Because I know there's been some research that says that sometimes movement doesn't matter. Then there's ones that say it does matter. And, you know, I want to kind of keep an open mind to both of them, you know, to be frank. But, you know, so what, in your opinion, what are some of the top studies that kind of support the importance of movement from a long term standpoint? Uh, th this is a big question, and it's probably one that's going to, my answer is probably going to rail on some people here, which I guess is okay, right? Contro a little controversy is okay, I suppose. Hey, we appreciate uh, it. We value it. <laughs> yeah, we're okay with that. So here's what I'm going to say. Number one, the idea that there's levels of evidence and that there's higher quality evidence than other research studies is a pretty flawed perspective. And the reason it's flawed is because you get into these slippery slope arguments over who gets to judge the quality of a research study. So when we look at like the levels of evidence, you know, the, the meta-analysis is better than an RCT and an RCT is better than a prospective study and a prospective study is better than observational research. Well, you start to find out real quick that that doesn't really make much sense because number one, our industry is so young and we have so little research on some of these things that we don't have enough research studies to actually do a fair meta-analysis or systematic review without falling prey to something called regression to the mean which is why all of our RCTs and meta-analysis tend to find no finding, you know, because it gets washed out. 
And if you don't know what regression of the mean is, look it up. Like, you know, just do a little Wikipedia search. And, and you, re- you start to realize real quick, like, we probably don't have the data we need to do respectable meta-analysis. Um, and then kind of breaking down some other logic here, like, who's to say that a randomized control trial is better than a perspective study? Those two things don't look at the same thing, right? A randomized control trial most often is cross-sectional. A prospective study is most often longitudinal and is looking for cause and effect. We need both of them. But you set one at level two and one at level three on the sevenance graph, so I'm supposed to think the RCT is better. And then we get to observational research, which is level four on this, this one graph that we use. And it's like, well, why is it level four if I'm looking for the anatomy of the gluteus maximus, which requires that I have an observational study? You guys got to get what I'm saying? Like, it's a pretty flawed idea. Yeah, so, you're preaching to the choir on that one, man. I mean, <laughs> you know. So the, let's, let's kind of move forward with, with how we look at all this stuff. All right, so let's take that and say, well, that's kind of a flawed idea. So the way the Brooke Bush Institute looks at it is we're just going to look at all the research. And we're going to try to find the trend, or at least what's being pointed to, from all of the research studies we have available. We're going to try to find the hypothesis or model, if you want to call it, the predictive model that makes all of the data we find fit together. And that's really, really hard to do, but it is possible. And then you have a guy like me who's actually looked at the research, which I think a lot of people haven't. I think a lot of people are making very large brush strokes with very small data sets. You know, we try to make small brush strokes with large data sets. What you find out real quick is there is no such thing as a research study that says movement is not important. It's just not true. You can find research studies that say there's no correlation between certain types of pain and certain assessments of movement, but that's just to say that the pain that you're looking at isn't correlated with the movement that you're looking at or the assessment you used wasn't sensitive. It's like people forget all of this stuff all of a sudden when they're looking at research to support their point, their confirmation bias comes in, right? There are about eight perspective studies I think we found that definitively show that movement impairment is predictive of an increased risk in injury and pain. So there is evidence that movement impairment will predict pain. There's no evidence against it. The evidence they say is against it is actual, actually correlational studies where somebody has failed to make a correlation. But failure to make a correlation doesn't mean there isn't a correlation. Like this all gets into the really theoretical world of research, right? And I know you're in a, a PhD program right now or an EDD program right now, so you're taking statistics and you know all of this stuff, but I get so frustrated with oh, there's no evidence for that. No, you just didn't look hard enough or you didn't look at all of the research. You just looked at the three studies you thought supported your view, right? Like that, that stuff just drives me nuts. Yeah, like I said, you're kind of preaching to the choir on that one. I've taken research and statistics twice now and, and I get the same frustrations. So I'm right there with you on that one. Yeah, man, I mean, look, there's definitely been, so let's, let's, let's throw my biases out there, right? I, obviously, there's no such thing as communication with, without bias. So everybody should know that. I'm biased just like everybody else. I admit to my flaws. Our bias is towards a human movement impairment approach. So we're coming out of Kendall and Yonda historically, right? And then Sarman and, of course, Mike Clark, who's one of my large influences from the National Academy of Sports Medicine, the corrective exercise model. So that's where we're coming from. I think there's a large amount of evidence to support the model that we use. And now with the models I've just updated for the lower extremity and lumbopelvic hip complex, they are the most comprehensive models I've seen. I'm not saying that to brag. I just really set out to make the most comprehensive model that I could, right? I was trying to find the right answer. So um, 
there's just there's a ton of research to show like if you get people moving optimally, pain will decrease. Like I think that's a I think that's a, a pretty fair statement. Now there are, are there situations where pain becomes centralized and other issues creep in? Absolutely. But let's not uh let's not dramatize that, right? If I get somebody out of pain in a single session, which I often do, right? Like if we're talking about like, let's say knee valgus is causing, or let's say we're just talking about uh, knee pain, anterior knee pain. And I see that they have functional knee valgus and I do my overhead squat assessment. I do some goniometry. I create an integrated intervention that gets them out of pain doing that same movement pattern that caused their pain. Let's say a deep squat um, in one session. I think your argument for centralization is probably pretty bad. Now, if I've been working for somebody with working with somebody for 10 sessions and nothing I do seems to modify their knee pain, now we have a different problem. But that's a very small percentage of the population. Yeah, no, I think you brought up a lot of really good points there. And I think it's interesting that even from a student standpoint, you don't know any better when you're in school. So you're learning and you have no idea. Yeah, I think, you know, I've talked to a couple people. I would really like, my company's getting big enough and, and I'm sure you guys can imagine, we have to be selective at what content we go after next. And man, we'd love to just dive into all of it. <laughs> Trust me, I would love to just take over the educational world and have every content center that anybody could think of available on our website. That would make me very, very happy. Um, as we get larger, I think what you'll see more and more from us is us try to bring in somebody who, who can help with content centers as we continue to grow. So maybe we pick a really good person who teaches research at a university and have them help us break down some lessons on, you know, what are the 10 biggest fallacies of that people make in interpreting research? You know, and that would be a great course. And I think we'll do that eventually. So Brent, with all the requirements needed in DPT programs, uh, integrating movement should be a must if we want to be branded as the movement experts, right? And, and we kind of talked about Shirley Sarman. She's kind of called us moveologists, right? So, so how do you think it should be done? I mean, is it a separate class or is it integrated into like examination and intervention classes or is there another way that we can do it possibly? Wow. Um, so yeah, physical therapy is, it's weird, right? Like we, Physical therapists from a, an education perspective in schools seem like we're trying to, to tug on the coattails of the medical profession. And I feel like a lot of the problem that physical therapists have right now is we, we don't know if we want to be movologists. I'm saying at a school level, right? Like the three of us on this, on this meeting might want to be movologists. But, you know, you have these, these other physical therapists who really kind of want to be diagnosticians. And then you have some people who would like nothing more than to be able to only have to deal with chronic pain in a hospital setting. And then of course you have acute care, respiratory care, cardiac care, and then we'll throw in all of our neurological dysfunctions on top of it from stroke to ALS to MS, right? It's like, we can't figure out where we should focus. And that's a problem. I mean, all of us in PT school, I don't know that many people who didn't think that PT school was the worst three years of their life. And it's because we just get jammed with all this information. And, and by the time we're out, it's like, we just don't have direction. So where, where this movement stuff should fit, obviously, is orthopedics, I think, uh, to start with. Um, I, I have to be honest, and I have to be humble in the sense that I don't know how well my model would work out for a neurology student, you know, somebody who wants to go into stroke or wants to go 
more into the progressive neurological diseases, although I can say I have several individuals who have reached out to me and said that they've had good success with Parkinson's patients using this model. They've had good success with MS patients using this model. But I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, Parkinson's and MS patients have orthopedic pain too. And people forget that. Yeah, it's tough, man. I would say it's definitely, it definitely should be part of our orthopedic classes, but then we also have to like carve out more time for it too. And that's tough. Yeah. And I think trying to get better at really reading, implementing, and kind of understanding the limitations of research too, because I feel like it's really easy, like you said, initially to kind of go down one school of thought. And frankly, I don't think students know any better. Right. Right. They usually get branded by their, by their uh, instructors, right? So if your instructor is a, a pain science doc and he's part of this very combative anti-movement impairment contrarian pain science approach that's kind of grown as a very hyperbolic sect of that movement, you know, um, then that's kind of what you come out knowing. And that's probably not real fair either. I mean, at my school, they taught two, we had two semesters of PNF, right? So like you ended up for a lot of stuff thinking that you're supposed to use like a PNF approach to stuff. And it's not that, it's not that there's anything wrong with PNF. I mean, I could, I could definitely harp on what I think the weaknesses of PNF are, but what I really, the point I'm really trying to make is why PNF? Why not Shirley Sarman? Why not Kendall? Why not, you know, like there's so many other schools of thought out there. Like, why did we get so much PNF? It just didn't really seem fair to me. Yeah, we, we basically had that same issue uh, in school. We, we had a, instead of two semesters, I think it was more about two weeks worth of PNF. And then we were on to the next thing. So like you said, it really depends on, on who's doing the educating and what their kind of belief systems are, I think. Yeah. Well, Brett, we like to wrap up each episode with uh, this one final question we ask all our guests. Um, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, whether it be physical therapy or other med- medical field related, which aspect would you change and how would you change it? Uh, oh, that I actually think this might actually be an easy answer. It has to be student-centered. I'm so tired of the bow down to your professor model. And you're going to jump through all these hoops. And because I had it hard, you're going to have it harder little student model that we have currently going. I want to see all that blown up. Yeah, I think, I think there's a, a lot of parallelism between that once you're in school and then once you get out of school into the real world from student-centric to patient-centric, right? I mean, if we, we show them that educating them and putting them at the center and making them the most important aspect of getting through DPT school is what we're supposed to be doing, then hopefully we can show them and tell them, and that's how it'll transition in the real world. You become from the student-centric, now you go out to the clinician aspect, and it becomes patient-centric, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. I was actually just reading a book. It's kind of funny. Uh, I know you guys read a lot about marketing. Let me see if I can find it here on my uh, Audible Audible list. I'm a huge fan of Audible. I'm going through a freaking ton of books on Audible. Uh, building a story brand. Have you ever heard this of this book? No, I haven't. Sounds great though. So pick it up. It's it's and I'll give you the the the, the main point. They talk about how you're not the hero as the company. That your customer is the hero, and that you're actually Yoda. <laughs> to use a Star Wars analogy, so like you're the the you you should always be painting. The, the customer is the hero and you're kind of the in the background advisor so that they can help the person or, you know, uh, the person in need at all times. So if you look at school, 
professors are painted as heroes, which is the wrong way to go. They're help, they look at like they're helping the young, weak student, right? Which then makes the student feel either incredibly combative, right? And back on their heels, or it makes them feel weak and, and non-confident. And then, of course, you go out into school and after being beaten down for three years by the so-called hero, which in this case might be Darth Vader instead, right? Like the, the, the anti-hero, you go out there and you're like, well, screw this. I've just got beaten up for three years. Now I'm the damn hero. You know, yeah, I could see totally where your analogy makes sense. Whereas if we go, I'm Yoda, right? I'm Yoda and I'm going to help the student. Once the student goes out and I've made them the hero, now the first thing they want to do is make their patient the hero and the villain is pain, right? But they've taken the Yoda approach. And if the patient, and the patient should absolutely take credit for getting themselves out of pain. We know that from all that pain science stuff we've been talking about throughout this whole thing, that that would actually be very, very positive. Yeah, first off, uh, bonus points for all Star Wars references. We love those here, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I definitely agree with you. And we, you, we generally, a lot of times, uh, as of late, we've been asking guests about books they've read that, that would be helpful to clinicians or, or new grads or students in the medical fields. And I think, you know, we'll link the, the show notes uh, with this, this book in there for sure, because it sounds like it's a really helpful one. But I use a very similar metaphor with my patients most of the time. I tell them I'm just a glorified cheerleader. You know, yep. you're, you're doing all the work. I mean, I'm just here on the sidelines, you know, cheering you on and, and, and getting you through what we need to get through. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I wasn't always that way. I mean, like you said, I think it was very easy to say, you know, I'm the hero and I, I'm so important. And, you know, when re- it, it took me a couple of years to realize that through practice that, you know, <laughs> I'm looking at this all wrong. I got to blow up my model and start over again. Um, which is a humbling experience and something we all have to go through, man. And it's awesome yeah. that you were able to look at yourself and go, man, I gotta, I gotta change all this stuff. And, and, yeah. and yeah, for sure. But it, has, it has been all for the better. I mean, for sure. It, it, it's definitely helped my patients uh, way more than I ever could have imagined. So, uh, you know, I, I always recommend a little bit of self-reflection and, and uh, really kind of take a look at, at what you're doing, um, you know, in your practice, because, uh, at the end of the day, it's all about helping the patient, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's why we got into this field. That's why we're trying to, to do things to, to better ourselves. But so, you know, in the end game, it's the patient gets better. Yeah, and, this is, and I'm just, I'm one step removed from that going, educators, it's all about the student. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. I love that. Well, uh, where can people find you both either online or social media if they want to reach out or get more information? Uh, I'm definitely all over social media. <laughs> Um, we, we have a, a big social media presence. That's always kind of been our go-to marketing. Um, brentbrookbush.com of course is the website and that's where you can find all of our online content and that monthly membership model I was talking about where you get all of your CECs and the path to the human movement specialist. And we now have like 600 articles, 450 videos. And like I said, we'll have more than hundred courses by the end of the year. You know, we have live workshops up there too. So the website is kind of the hub. Uh, I'm on Facebook is probably my biggest platform. If you guys want to follow me on Instagram, I'm there too. Uh, LinkedIn, Twitter I'm on, although I don't use Twitter all that much. Um, yeah, man, I'm, Google me, I, I guess. You'll, you'll find all of YouTube. I know a lot of people find me on YouTube too. We have probably about 100 videos on YouTube. So, you know, we kind of keep a little sampling of our videos up there. You can't reach all 450 of our videos, but you can reach a lot of our videos and kind of get started that way too. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. It was a great episode today and I'm sure our audience will gain a lot of valuable info from it. So 
thanks again, man. I really look forward to chatting with you again in the future. No, thank you guys, man. Thanks for the opportunity. It was awesome. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast as we greatly appreciate your support to help us advance healthcare education. We are very happy to announce that we have created a new tool to help develop clinicians into better experts. With that being said, we have created the HET Light Tool, which LIGHT stands for Learning Integrated Towards Expertise. And what we've done is we've taken our first year's worth of episodes with experts in the fields of healthcare and education, and we've taken one golden nugget or theory on expertise and presented it to you in a very easily consumable format so that people can take one lesson or nugget per week and map out and plan how to incorporate it into your clinical and educational practices. And by the end of the year, we think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how far you've progressed towards becoming an expert. To find out more, please check it out at pteducator.com slash H-E-T, which is also available in our show notes. Thank you again all for your continued support. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.